Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 14. As you're doing that, isn't it so good to rehearse the truths that we just sang? Don't you just need to be reminded every week that where is goodness found? In in our God alone. And he will keep us to the end. This is just rich truths that hopefully are the foundation underneath your feet as you walk through this life. So we are walking through the book of Genesis, and we are in Genesis 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use that blue one in front of you, and you can find it on page 11, I believe. So Genesis 14, I'm going to read the whole chapter here. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedar Leomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar Leomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Amim and Shaba Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sire as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to In Mishpat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Kederleomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kederleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons 
but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So you can go ahead and come up and tell me all the names that I, I did not get right later, okay? I know you guys were tracking with that. Well, when we come to chapter 14, it feels like a story that might have come right out of an epic adventure, something like Lord of the Rings. In fact, it's got three ingredients that any really good epic adventure story needs. First, you've got to have a mind-boggling list of names and places that are impossible to keep track of, right? Now, I, I love Lord of the Rings, but have you ever talked to someone who really loves Lord of the Rings? I mean, it is mind-blowing. They will rattle on and on about how Aragorn is descended from Isildur and how the orcs are the servants of Sauron under Saruman's command. And they'll talk about Mordor and Rivendell and Khazad-dûm and Helm's Deep. And if you've never read the books or seen the movies, and maybe if you have, you look at them like, what language are you speaking? All those names sound weird and confusing. Well, guess what we have in chapter 14? How familiar are you with the Amim and Shavakiriathayim? What do you know about Shemeber, king of Zeboim, or Kederleomer? So, step one, names and places that sound unfamiliar? Check. Now, step two to an epic adventure is plenty of battle scenes, right? And chapter 14 is filled with fighting. You can almost hear the swords clanging and the battle cries ringing out. If this were a movie, there would be some amazing action scenes here. And finally, the third ingredient you need for an epic adventure is that there has to be a deeper storyline underneath all the battles. It can't be just a bunch of fighting. There has to be a bigger story unfolding, some epic conflict between good and evil that can't be resolved on a battlefield, something that taps into our deepest desires and aspirations. And Genesis 14 has all three ingredients. This is another one of those stories that can be so easy for us just to skip right over because there's a lot of names. We're not really sure what is it all about. But I think when we slow down and we see what's here, I think we uncover an epic tale that's right up there with Lord of the Rings. And since it's an epic adventure, I felt like it needed an epic title, so I called it Two Battles and the Blessing of the Priest King, which to me, I felt like Tolkien would be proud of that. Okay? But why did I call it that? Well, I think what we're going to see is that the story this morning revolves around two main battles. And that gives us our outline. So if you have the outline slide, go ahead and throw that one up there. Nope, not that one. There you go. So the first, we're going to look at verses 1 to 16. And we're going to see the battle to bring back the captives. And then in verses 17 to 24, we're going to see the second battle. The battle to treasure the blessing. So two battles and the blessing of the priest king. That's where we're going this morning. And what we're going to see is that victory in both those battles is fueled by the same thing. By Abram's faith and the promises of God. So let's work our way back through this story and kind of see what we can see. Start with the battle to bring back the captives. 
first, let's, let me set the stage for you. In verses 1 to 2, we meet two groups of kings. So first, we meet a group of four kings. Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goim. So these four kings, they were in an area that was further to the east and the north, but further to the east. So I'm going to call them the eastern kings, all right? I'm not going to keep saying their names over and over again. So those are the eastern kings. Then you've got a group of five kings. The kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. These kings we'll call the western kings, right? Eastern kings, western kings. Now each of these two was an alliance of small city-state kingdoms. Like, don't think massive, like this isn't like Russia, China, and Japan all linked. These are small city-state kingdoms. And back then, these small city-state kingdoms, they would do exactly what we see here. They would have treaties or covenants with other city-states to help each other. So that when one went to battle, they all went to battle. So here we've got two alliances, the eastern kings and the western kings, And they're marching to war with one another in verse 3. They're headed for a showdown, it says, in the Valley of Sidim by the Dead Sea. That's where we got it first. Two factions headed to war. But why are they fighting? Well, that's what verse 4 tells us. See, for 12 years, the western kings had served Keterleomer. He's kind of the head honcho of the eastern kings. And the western kings had been his subjects probably forced to pay him lots of money in taxes or in tribute so that he wouldn't wipe them out, saying, I will let you be as long as you give me enough money and possessions and things. So these kings, they they put up with this arrangement, it says, for 12 years. But in year 13, they'd had enough. So they rebelled against him, verse 4 says. That's what sparked the battle that's coming down in verse 8, okay? The western kings, including the king of Sodom, had rebelled against Keterleomer and the eastern kings. So now, Keterleomer and his boys are on the warpath, headed down to put down this rebellion and squash the uprising. Now, in verses 5 to 7, we see them on the warpath. They're, they're not at the battle. There was a good distance between them, and they're making their way down to this battle. And all along the way, We're told about military victory after military victory after military victory. As Keterleomer and his allies marched southward, they crushed and conquered every people that they encountered, including the Rephaim, who if you know a little bit later, the Rephaim are said to be giant people. Like these are not just some pushovers. We're supposed to see they even took out the giants. The point in verses 5 to 7 is that Keterleomer is the head of this unstoppable army, right? He's making his way and he's defeating anyone that gets in the way, even giants. And the bad news for the Western kings is that this unstoppable military force that they've rebelled against is now headed their way. Okay, that's where we end in verse seven. Now, verse eight and nine, the battle arrives. The mighty army of the four Eastern kings squares off against the army of the five western kings in a valley near the Dead Sea. Now this valley we find out in verse 10 was full of bitumen pits. Now bitumen was like a tar or an asphalt that was naturally occurring and still today you can still find pits of this 
in this area near the south end of the Dead Sea. And these, were, these weren't just little potholes. These were big pits that would bubble and ooze. And as the battle went on, the eastern kings are just dominating and decimating the western kings. So the western kings, they, they light out. They're just fleeing for their lives. But as they try to escape, some of them are falling into these pits and they're trapped. Those who make it out flee to the mountains, it says. Okay, so it's been an utter rout. They have taken off. So then, with the western armies out of the way, the eastern kings just take whatever they wanted as the spoils of war. Look at verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Okay? Now up to this point, stop at the end of verse 11. We're reading it. And if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, you might be wondering, why is this story even in here? I mean, we've been following along with this guy, Abram. And then it feels like we're watching a movie about Abram, and then suddenly someone changed the channel, and we're, we're watching some big regional battle that has nothing to do with him. We have no idea, what is all this stuff about four kings, five kings? What's this got to do with Abram? But then, it all snaps into focus in verse 12. We read there, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So as we read it, we think, ah, there it is. That's our connection. Now, if you remember, the last time we saw Lot, he had parted ways with Abram and had selfishly chosen for himself the land that appeared better to him. Abram gave him a choice, and he said, ooh, I'll take the good one. Thank you very much. And when he moved into the land, chapter 13, verse 12, told us he had pitched his tent as far as Sodom, or other translations say near Sodom. So he chose to live right by Sodom, even though chapter 13 tells us the city was filled with people who were described as wicked Great sinners against the Lord. But Lot says, yeah, but it's really nice there. Yeah, they've got wickedness, but oh, the land is beautiful. But now, chapter 14, verse 12, did you notice? We find Lot dwelling not just near Sodom, but in it. He's gotten comfortable with and drawn into a society marked by great sin. Now he's made his home right in the midst of sin. And as a result of him living in Sodom, when Keterleomer came and conquered the city, Lot and all that he had was taken into captivity by the enemy. So what's going to happen now? Surely as Lot and his family are being led away by their captors, I'm, I'm guessing Lot contemplated all that had led him to this moment. I'm sure he's thinking, if only he hadn't chosen what looked good to his eyes while ignoring the danger that it posed, he wouldn't be in this mess. Or if only he hadn't moved even further into Sodom, if he'd stayed out, maybe when the army came through, he would have been able to get away or they would have left him alone. But now, all his hopes for this prosperous future that he envisioned suddenly evaporated as he found himself captive to a powerful enemy. But verse 13 gives us a spark of hope. Look there. Then one who had escaped 
came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. So here's the scene. As Sodom is being ransacked by Keterleomer, one guy manages to slip away and escape. He then travels the roughly 20 miles or so to where Abram is, living alongside these three Amorite brothers, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner. The text calls these guys allies of Abram. The word there actually means they were in covenant with Abram. They were linked to him by this covenant so that their battles were his and his battles were theirs. And one day, these covenant allies are sitting in their tents when in stumbles this man, looking pretty worse for the wear, who comes saying he's escaped from Sodom and he tells Abram what has happened. He's probably out of breath. He's exhausted. He says, Abram, it's Lot. He's gone. The enemy has taken him captive. Now, here's one pivotal moment in our story. What would Abram do when he gets this news? Keep in mind the last time they'd been in conversation. What would Abram do? Would he do what many of us might do and say, serves him right? I tried to warn him, but no, he knew better. He chose his direction and now he's got to deal with the consequences. Would he be bitter about Lot taking care of only himself and choosing the best portion? Let's see how he responds in verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So do you see what happens here? Abram doesn't abandon Lot even when it was his own selfishness that got him into this trouble. Instead, when Abram hears that his kinsman, his family member, has been taken captive by the enemy, the compassion and his mercy are aroused. His love and generosity are awakened and he goes to rescue Lot. He leaves the comfort and security of his own dwelling and he starts to pursue his captured kinsmen. It says Abram takes 318 trained men with him. Now we don't know, but this is most likely a much smaller force than what the enemy had. But he chases Keterleomer until he catches up to them near a city called Dan. Then he launches a surprise attack by night and he defeats the enemy and pursues them another 40 to 50 miles. And then he brings back Lot and the captives. In fact, that bring back language is meant to stick out to us. Look at this comparison. Go ahead and throw that other slide up. Look at this comparison of how it describes what the enemy did and what Abram did. Verse 11 and 12. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Ah, but what happens when Abram catches them? Then Abram brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Do you see what's going on here? The enemy took all the possessions of Sodom 
and also took Lot. So what does Abram do? He brought back all the possessions and he brought back Lot. See, the enemy came through only to steal and take captives. Abram came to defeat the enemy and bring back the captives. Are you hearing this? Now, at this point, as we're kind of driving through this story, I hope right now on your dashboard, your gospel warning light is blinking like crazy, saying, oh, wait, 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 wait. Because right here, we see Abram serving as a pointer to one who fought a greater battle to bring back the captives. See, this story that we just walked through is really the story of the gospel. Okay, follow me here. All of us made the same choice Lot did. We all chose to go our own way and moved our tents into the land of sin. Because the life it offered looked good in our sight. So we parted ways with God and chose the way that seemed right to us. Over time, we made ourselves increasingly at home in this life apart from God. Moving from the edges of sin right into the downtown. Because we were dwelling in sin, we were quickly taken captive by a powerful enemy who captured us to do his will. And this enemy came through only to steal, kill, and destroy. We had followed the way that seemed right to us, but its end led us only to death and captivity. But, but our kinsman, Jesus, wouldn't sit idly by and leave us in our captivity. Even though he had every right to look at us and say, serves them right. I gave them a choice, but no, they knew better. They wanted that, they made their decision, and now they need to live with the consequences. He could have said that and been just. But Jesus never did that. Because he doesn't abandon us. Even when it's our selfishness and sin that got us into trouble. Instead, our plight and our capture by the enemy causes the fires of his love and mercy and compassion to roar into flame. And in his generosity toward undeserving sinners, Jesus left his home of comfort and security to come after us and bring us back. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Why? Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Friends, our Lord Jesus was sent to save us. He chased down the enemy until he launched an attack that completely surprised him. How did he defeat this powerful enemy? A show of force? Just an overwhelming frontal assault? No. He greatly suffered, dying for us. In our place, condemned he stood. Though Jesus lived a perfect life, he bled for our betrayal and for our sin. He suffered the full consequence that we deserve for every time you and I choose something other than God. Saying, no, no, that looks better. I, I think this will be better for me, God. And Jesus paid the penalty. Even though we were guilty, undeserving, and helpless, he came to us to rescue us. Friends, one of the things I hope you see in this passage, one of the things I hope that is 
happening in your heart because these stories are meant to make us feel things. And one of the things I hope you feel is how absolutely undeserving Lot is here. He's been nothing but a punk. He's been riding his uncle's coattails. He's gotten him into trouble. He's selfishly chosen and left him in the dust. And friends, that is us. We're meant to see how despicable and undeserving Lot is and say, I'm the man. And do you see how it is only the love and compassion of his kinsman, Abram, that compels him to come after him? How it is only tender mercy and generous grace that draws Abram to his rescue? That is our Jesus. Do you see how Abram doesn't hesitate to go after his captured loved one and bring him back? Like when, he, this, when this person comes and says, Abram, your loved one's been taken captive. He doesn't say, oh, I'm in the middle of something. I mean, can it wait? No, he hears and instantly he's like, I'm going to go get him. Friends, that's our Jesus. When he hears of his loved ones being taken captive, he didn't wait. He came. He came to bring us back. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. He came to set us free from Satan and sin and death. Hebrews says he came to destroy the one who has the power of death and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to bring us back to him. And one day, he'll come again, all his ransomed home to bring. So friends, what Lot got a taste of from Abram you and I get to experience in full from Jesus. We get to experience the fact that he doesn't abandon his loved ones to captivity. Instead, he comes after us to bring us back. But Abram's not just a pointer. He's a pointer, I think, but not just a pointer to Jesus here. He's also a pattern for us. Because here, in his act, he shows what faith is in action looks like, right? Our series is tracking with the faith of Abram and we've seen, we've seen it in stories, but now we're seeing what does it look like in action? Well, why did he step out on this risky venture of love? Why would he do it? Because he believed God's promises. He knew what God had promised him and he knew that even if he failed or even if things didn't go the way he planned, God would keep his promises, his trust in God's goodness toward him, God's presence with him, and God's power for him led Abram to undertake courageous acts of love by faith. Or as Paul would say later in Galatians 5, it was his faith working through love. Believing the promises of God was the key to Abram fighting and winning the battle to bring back the captives. Which brings us to our second battle. The battle to treasure the blessing. Now, even though no swords were drawn in this battle, I think this one might have been the harder one for Abram. So let's see what happens. Look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Okay, let's stop there. 
Let's talk about what we have so far. So after Abram defeats the great enemy, Kedileomer, he's on his way back home when he's greeted by two kings. And to see what's going on in this scene, it's helpful to hold these two kings up side by side and contrast them, okay? So first we have the king of Sodom. Now we don't know a whole lot about this guy, but we do know something about his kingdom. Remember, this man is the ruler of a city filled with wicked people, great sinners against the Lord. A place so bad that in a few chapters it will face God's judgment by fire. Now, it's no stretch to say that most likely the kingdom is a reflection of their king. So, odds are, not a good guy. Now, we also see that it would appear this king views Abram's victory as a merely human accomplishment. Nowhere does he seem to indicate that he thinks God had anything to do with Abram's success. Instead, he tries to cozy up with Abram to share in his power. Also, notice what the king of Sodom brings when he goes out to meet Abram. What does he bring? Nothing. As Abram and his men come home, weary from battle, this evil king has nothing to offer him but a proposition. We'll get to the proposition in a moment. Because before we hear the king of Sodom's offer, though, we meet and hear from the other king. This king... Melchizedek, we're told, is the king of Salem, a city which would later be called Jerusalem. And while the king of Sodom was most likely a wicked man, just like his subjects, Melchizedek's name, on the other hand, means king of righteousness. And while the king of Sodom came empty-handed and, in fact, wanted to get something from Abram, Melchizedek came offering bread and wine to nourish and refresh the weary faithful. Not only that, we learn something really interesting about this king of Salem. We are told he is also a priest of the Most High God. Now this is actually the first time the word priest shows up in our Bibles. The concept was there in the garden, but the word itself hasn't made its appearance till now. And it's well before God creates the office of priests that are in the line of Levi. And this priest, we see, is different. Unlike the Levitical priests who kind of, you saw the genealogy, you had to prove that you were from this guy, from this guy, from this guy, and you could trace where the priests were going to come from. This priest, he comes out of nowhere. Like, we're just reading along. Like, he's not even mentioned earlier in the story, and all of a sudden, Melchizedek's there. And then, he isn't heard of again after this. So in our story, it seems as though this priest king has no beginning and no end. And as I mentioned, not only that, what we're supposed to see is he's both priest and king. And this priest king comes not just with bread and wine, but with a blessing. Look at verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek does what a priest does here, right? He blesses. Now notice a couple things about this blessing. First, notice what he grounds his blessing in. 
Because sometimes we think of blessing and I don't think we understand what's going on. See, this isn't just Melchizedek offering some positive thoughts toward Abram. He's not just giving him some well wishes. Saying, oh, bless you. Hope it goes well. Hope everything works out for you. That's not what's happening here. He's linking Abram's blessing to the greatest power in the universe. To God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, where it says possessor, your Bible might have a footnote or might even translate it. This can also be translated as creator. The word can mean both, and I think it's chosen here because it's intentionally ambiguous. Because those two ideas are inseparable, right? God is the possessor of heaven and earth because he's the creator of heaven and earth. Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, for you have founded them. In other words, Melchizedek is saying to Abram right here, he's saying, Abram, the God who made everything and the God who owns everything and is the most high above every other power, that God is the one who has blessed you. He is the one who has made you the promises to keep blessing you. Not only that, Melchizedek also blesses God. And when he does that, he acknowledges that this God is the one who gave Abram the victory over the enemy. He's saying, Abram, I know it wasn't your strength. It wasn't your wisdom. It wasn't your goodness that earned you the victory. It was God Most High who gave you the victory. And this is a loud and clear reminder to Abram. This victory is God keeping his promises. He promised to make you great. He promised to make you a great nation. He promised to bless you. And he's a faithful God. Look what he did for you, Abram. And if he did this, he will keep all of his promises. So trust him, Abram. We see that as Melchizedek offers this blessing, Abram recognizes this one. He's never met, to our knowledge, he's never met Melchizedek, but in him, he recognizes a fellow worshiper. And he recognizes Melchizedek as one who was greater than him. That says that, therefore, he paid him a tithe. He gave him a tenth of everything as a way to honor him, saying, you are the greater. Hebrews says it is the lesser who blesses the greater. And he showed that he agreed it was God who was the source of his victory and blessing. But then we come to verse 21. In verse 21, the king of Sodom now speaks up. Look what he says. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Okay, so here is this week's trial of Abram's faith. We've seen one the last three weeks. He goes down to Egypt. He's afraid of his life, so he tells his wife to lie about being just his sister. Last week, he has the trial of faith. There's strife in the family. There's conflict. What's he going to do? Will he be willing to trust God and let Lot make the choice? Or will he cling to his right and insist on getting the land he wants? Those are the two trials. Well, here's this week's. Here's where this faith that we've been watching grow is put to the test. See, Abram had just pulled off a stunning military victory. And now he's being offered the spoils of war. And the deal that the king of Sodom offers is simple. Just let him have the people, and Abram, you can have all 
the possessions. And this would have been a lot of possessions. I mean, keep in mind, this is like the, what's left after conquering multiple city kingdoms. He's saying, you can have all of it. Just, I just want the people. You keep all the stuff. So the question that hits us at this point is, would Abram take the deal? Would he accept these riches? Even though it meant getting entangled with the evil king of Sodom. Would he trust God to keep his promises, to bless him and make him great? Or would he seize this opportunity to rely on his newfound power to get what he wanted? Right? It's right there. It's his for the taking. All he has to do is make a deal with this king. He says, I don't, I don't want everything. I just want some of it. The choice before Abram was simple. Which would he treasure more? The possessions of the world or the promises of God? Right here, this was a battle for Abram's heart. Let's see what Abram chose. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram, when confronted with this choice, of what would he treasure more? The possessions of the world or the promises of God? He makes, an, he makes it unequivocally clear. He refuses. He says, I, I won't take your stuff. I've raised my hand. I've sworn an oath to the Lord Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. He clings to the promises of his God. How was he able to do it? Because he had the blessing of the priest king ringing in his ears. Notice the further contrast here. This, the contrast we said earlier between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. We see more of it here. Look at the first words out of their mouths. The king of Sodom. Give me. Melchizedek. Blessed be Abram. Give. Versus Bless. And when Melchizedek came, he came offering bread and wine and a blessing. When the king of Sodom came, he came only seeking to get something from Abram. I got a deal for you, Abram. Just give me, give me, give me, and I'll, I'll try to give you something. And as Abram considered this offer of all the possessions, Abram had the blessing of the priest king to remind him of what was true. That's why it's significant that he heard this blessing first. Because it put some things back in his mind and his heart. He had it ringing in his ears as he heard the offer, the temptation. And what he was reminded of, that's true, is he didn't need to rely on the self-seeking shrewdness of the king of Sodom to provide for him. He had the generous blessing of the Most High God. He didn't need to compromise and run after possessions because he belonged to the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram was able to refuse the temptation because he treasured the blessing of God more than any earthly riches. In fact, he considered the sum of all created things as worthless in comparison to the value of knowing God and belonging to him. God was his portion. God was his inheritance. And God was his treasure. And it was the blessing of the priest king that helped him see that. Now, after Melchizedek, we don't hear about any priest kings again. This wasn't a normal thing. We don't hear of any more 
until Psalm 110. There, King David prophesied that there would be one who was to come who would both rule at God's right hand as king and who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the people hear this. Now remember, Melchizedek's been gone for hundreds of years. They hear David speak of this one who's to come, and they wait, and they wait. When will this priest king come? Who will this priest king be? Until finally, just like Melchizedek, Jesus appears on the scene seemingly out of nowhere. This Jesus has no beginning of days or end of life, but continues as a priest forever. Like the first priest king, Jesus comes to us who are weary from the fight of faith and he offers us bread and wine. And he comes with a blessing. He reminds us that the victory is ours, a victory that he won. He gives it to us as a gift and he reminds us that we belong to him, the God who made everything and owns everything. That he is the fulfillment of all God's promises to us. And in him we have a treasure that is greater than anything this world can ever offer us. As our priest, Jesus has made the sacrifice for our sins and our penalty is now paid in full. As our king, he now reigns over us in love and mercy, keeping his promises and satisfying us with his goodness. In him. In our priest king, we have all we could ever need and ever want. And therefore, when the battle for our hearts rage, we can refuse the offers of temptation and hold fast the promises of God. How? The same way Abram did. By treasuring the blessing of the priest king. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the great priest king. Lord, we thank you that he is our high priest, the one who has made the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, who has finished his work, who doesn't need to keep standing like the priests of old, but has now taken his seat at your right hand because he cried, it is finished. We thank you that this Jesus is not only our priest, but our king who rules over us, who is sovereignly showing his goodness to us day after day. And one day, our glorious king will come again, all his ransomed home to bring. God, we thank you for this pointer to him we see in the life of Abram. Thank you that Abram trusted your promises and showed us what it looks like to do so. We pray for grace today to trust you and we pray that you would help our hearts to be wowed by the story of the gospel. Lord, help us to count Jesus as superior to everything else so that when temptation comes, we don't see it as giving up something good for something less good, but we see giving up something that would only lead to death for something that gives us pleasures forevermore. Lord, help us to rightly value you. Help us to see you as the treasure you are. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.